Tuesdays with Maury, an old man, a young man, and life's greatest lesson. By Mitch Album. This book is dedicated to my brother Peter, the bravest person I know. I would like to acknowledge the enormous help given to me in creating this book. For their memories, their patience, and their guidance, I wish to thank Charlotte, Rob, and Jonathan Schwartz, Maury Stein, Charlie Derber, Gordy Fellman, David Schwartz, Rabbi Al Axelrod, and the multitude of Maury's friends and colleagues. Also, special thanks to Bill Thomas, my editor, for handling this project with just the right touch. And as always, my appreciation to David Black, who often believes in me more than I do myself. Mostly my thanks to Maury for wanting to do this last thesis together. Have you ever had a teacher like this? Tuesdays with Maury. The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No grades were given, but there were oral exams each week. You were expected to respond to questions, and you were expected to pose questions of your own. You were also required to perform physical tasks now and then, such as lifting the professor's head to a comfortable spot on the pillow, or placing his glasses on the bridge of his nose. Kissing him goodbye earned you extra credit. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. Although no final exam was given, you were expected to produce one long paper on what was learned. That paper is presented here. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. It is the late spring of 1979, a hot, sticky Saturday afternoon. Hundreds of us sit together side by side in rows of wooden folding chairs on the main campus lawn. We wear blue nylon robes, we listen impatiently to long speeches. When the ceremony is over, we throw our caps in the air, and we are officially graduated from college, the senior class of Brandeis University in the city of Waltham, Massachusetts. For many of us, the curtain has just come down on childhood. Afterward, I find Maury Schwartz, my favorite professor, and introduce him to my parents. He's a small man who takes small steps, as if a strong wind could at any time whisk him up into the clouds. In his graduation day robe, he looks like a cross between a biblical prophet and a Christmas elf. He has sparkling blue-green eyes, thinning silver hair that spills onto his forehead, big ears, a triangular nose, and tufts of graying eyebrows. Although his teeth are crooked and his lower ones are slanted back, as if someone had once punched them in, when he smiles, it's as if you just told him the first joke on earth. He tells my parents how I took every class he taught. He tells them, you have a special boy here. Embarrassed, I look at my feet. Before we leave, I hand my professor a present, a tan briefcase with his initials on the front. I bought this the day before at a shopping mall. I didn't want to forget him. Maybe I didn't want him to forget me. Mitch, you're one of the good ones, he says, admiring the briefcase. Then he hugs me. I feel his thin arms around my back. I'm taller than he is, and when he holds me, I feel awkward, older, as if I were the parent and he were the child. He asks if I will stay in touch, and without hesitation I say, of course. When he steps back, 
I see that he is crying. The Audio-Visual In March of 1995, a limousine carrying Ted Koppel, the host of ABC TV's Nightline, pulled up to the snow-covered curb outside Maury's house in West Newton, Massachusetts. Maury was in a wheelchair full-time now, getting used to helpers lifting him like a heavy sack from the chair to the bed and the bed to the chair. He had begun to cough while eating, and chewing was a chore. His legs were dead. He would never walk again. Yet he refused to be depressed. Instead, Maury had become a lightning rod of ideas. He jotted down his thoughts on yellow pads, on envelopes, folders, scrap paper. He wrote bite-sized philosophies about living with death's shadow. Accept what you are able to do and what you're not able to do, he wrote. Accept the past as the past without denying it or discarding it. Learn to forgive yourself and to forgive others. Don't assume that it's too late to get involved. After a while, Maury had more than 50 of these aphorisms, which he shared with his friends. One friend, a fellow Brandeis professor named Maury Stein, was so taken with the words that he sent them to a Boston Globe reporter who came out and wrote a long feature story on Maury. The headline read, A Professor's Final Course, His Own Death. The article caught the eye of a producer from the Nightline show who brought it to Koppel in Washington, D.C. Take a look at this, the producer said. Next thing you knew, there were cameramen in Maury's living room and Koppel's limousine was in front of the house. Several of Maury's friends and family members had gathered to meet Koppel, and when the famous man entered the house, they buzzed with excitement, all except Maury, who wheeled himself forward, raised his eyebrows, and interrupted the clamor with his high sing-song voice. Ted, he said, I need to check you out before I agree to do this interview. There was an awkward silence, then the two men were ushered into the study. The door was shut. Man, one friend whispered outside the door. I hope Ted goes easy on Maury. I hope Maury goes easy on Ted, said the other. Inside the office, Maury motioned for Koppel to sit down. He crossed his hands in his lap and smiled. Tell me something close to your heart, Maury began. My heart, Koppel said. Koppel studied the old man. All right. He spoke about his children. They were close to his heart, weren't they? Good, Maury said. Now tell me something about your faith. Koppel was uncomfortable. I usually don't talk about such things with people I've only known a few minutes. Ted, Maury said, I'm dying. I don't have a lot of time here. Koppel laughed. All right, faith. He quoted a passage from Marcus Aurelius, something he felt strongly about. Maury nodded. Now let me ask you something, Koppel said. Have you ever seen my program? Maury shrugged. Twice, I think. Twice? That's all, Koppel said. Don't feel bad, Maury said. I've only seen Oprah once. Well, the two times you saw my show, what did you think? Maury paused. To be honest? Yes, Koppel said. I thought you were a narcissist. Koppel burst into laughter. I'm too ugly to be a narcissist, he said. Soon the cameras were rolling in front of the living room fireplace with Koppel in his crisp blue suit and Maury in his shaggy gray sweater. He had refused fancy clothes or makeup for this interview. His philosophy was that death should not be embarrassing, he was not about to powder its nose. Because Maury sat in the wheelchair, the camera never caught his withered legs. And because he was still able to move his hands, Maury always spoke with his hands waving, he showed some great passion when explaining how you face the end of life. Ted, he said, when all this started, I asked myself, am I going to withdraw from the world like most people do, or am I going to live? I decided I'm going to live, or at least try to live, the way I want, with dignity, with courage, 
with humor, with composure. There are some mornings when I cry and cry and mourn for myself. Some mornings I'm so angry and bitter, but it doesn't last too long. Then I get up and say, I want to live. So far, I've been able to do it. Will I be able to continue? I don't know, but I'm betting on myself that I will. Koppel seemed extremely taken with Maury. He asked about the humility that death induced. Well, Fred, Maury said accidentally. Then he quickly corrected himself. I mean, Ted. Now that's inducing humility, Koppel said, laughing. The two men spoke about the afterlife. They spoke about Maury's increasing dependency on other people. He already needed help eating and sitting and moving from place to place. Koppel asked what did Maury dread the most about his slow, insidious decay. Maury paused. He asked if he could say this certain thing on television. Koppel said, go ahead. Maury looked straight into the eyes of the most famous interviewer in America. Well, Ted, he said, one day soon, someone's going to have to wipe my ass. The program aired on a Friday night. It began with Ted Koppel from behind the desk in Washington, his voice booming with authority. Who is Maury Schwartz, he said, and why, by the end of the night, are so many of you going to care about him? A thousand miles away in my house on the hill, I was casually flipping channels. I heard those words from the TV set, Who is Maury Schwartz? And I went numb. It is our first class together in the spring of 1976. I enter Maury's large office and notice the seemingly countless books that line the wall, shelf after shelf. Books on sociology, philosophy, religion, psychology. There's a large rug on the hardwood floor and a window that looks out on the campus walk. Only a dozen or so students are there, fumbling with notebooks and syllabi. Most of them wear jeans and earth shoes and plaid flannel shirts. I tell myself it won't be easy to cut a class this small. Maybe I shouldn't take it. Mitchell, Maury says, reading from the attendance list. I raise a hand. Do you prefer Mitch or is Mitchell better? I've never been asked this by a teacher. I do a double take at this guy in his yellow turtleneck and green corduroy pants, the silver hair that falls on his forehead. He's smiling. Mitch, I say. Mitch is what my friends call me. Well, Mitch it is then, Maury says, as if closing a deal. And Mitch? Yes, I say. I hope that one day you will think of me as your friend. The Classroom The sun beamed in through the dining room window, lighting up the hardwood floor. We'd been talking there for nearly two hours. The phone rang yet again, and Maury asked his helper, Connie, to get it. She'd been jotting the caller's names in Maury's small black appointment book. Friends, meditation teachers, a discussion group, someone who wanted to photograph him for a magazine. It was clear I was not the only one interested in visiting my old professor. The nightline appearance had made him something of a celebrity. But I was impressed with, maybe a bit envious of, all the friends that Maury seemed to have. I thought about the buddies that had circled my orbit back in college. Where had they gone? You know, Mitch, Maury said, now that I'm dying, I've become much more interesting to people. You were always interesting, I said. Oh, Maury smiled. You're kind. No, I'm not, I thought. Here's the thing, Maury said. People see me as a bridge. I'm not as alive as I used to be, but I'm not yet dead. I'm sort of in between. He coughed, then regained his smile. I'm on the last great journey here, and people want me to tell them what to pack. The phone rang yet again. Maury, can you talk? Connie asked. I'm visiting my old pal now, he announced. Let them call back. 
I cannot tell you why he received me so warmly. I was hardly the promising student who had left him 16 years earlier. Had it not been for Nightline, Maury might have died without ever seeing me again. I had no good excuse for this, except the one that everyone these days seems to have. I had become too wrapped up in the siren song of my own life. I was busy. What happened to me, I asked myself. Maury's high, smoky voice took me back to my university years. Back then, I thought rich people were evil. A shirt and tie were prison clothes. And life without freedom to get up and go down the streets of Paris or the mountains of Tibet, well, that was not a good life at all. What happened to me? The 80s happened. The 90s happened. Death and sickness and getting fat and going bald happened. I traded lots of dreams for a bigger paycheck. I never even realized I was doing it. Yet here was Maury, talking with the wonder of our college years, as if I'd simply been on a long vacation. Have you found someone to share your heart with, he asked? Are you giving to your community? Are you at peace with yourself? Are you trying to be as human as you can be? I squirmed, wanting to show I had been grappling deeply with these questions. What happened to me? I once promised myself I would never work for money, that I would join the Peace Corps, that I would live in beautiful, inspirational places. Instead, I'd been in Detroit for 10 years now, at the same workplace, using the same bank, visiting the same barber. I was 37, more efficient than in college. I was tied to computers and modems and cell phones. I wrote articles about rich athletes who, for the most part, could not care less about people like me. I was no longer young for my peer group, nor did I walk around in gray sweatshirts with unlit cigarettes in my mouth. I did not have long discussions over egg salad sandwiches about the meaning of life. My days were full, yet I remained much of the time unsatisfied. What happened to me? Coach, I said suddenly, remembering the nickname. Maury beamed. That's me. I'm still your coach. He laughed and resumed his eating, a meal he had started 40 minutes earlier. I watched him now, his hands working gingerly, as if he were learning to use them for the very first time. He could not press down hard with a knife. His fingers shook. Each bite was a struggle. He chewed the food finely before swallowing, and sometimes it slid out the sides of his lips, so that he had to put down what he was holding to dab his face with a napkin. The skin from his wrist to his knuckles was dotted with age spots, and it was loose, like skin hanging from a chicken soup bone. For a while, we just ate like that, a sick old man, a healthy younger man, both absorbing the quiet of the room. I would say it was an embarrassed silence, but I seemed to be the only one embarrassed. Dying, Maury suddenly said. There's only one thing to be sad over, Mitch. Living unhappily is something else. So many of the people who come to visit me are unhappy. Why, I asked. Well, for one thing, the culture we have does not make people feel good about themselves. We're teaching the wrong things. And you have to be strong enough to say if the culture doesn't work, don't use it. Create your own culture. Most people can't do it. They're more unhappy than me, even in my current condition. I may be dying, but I'm surrounded by loving, caring souls. How many other people can say that? I was astonished at Maury's complete lack of self-pity. He could no longer dance, swim, bathe, or walk. He could no longer answer his own door, dry himself after a shower, or even roll over in bed. How could he be so accepting? I watched him struggle with his fork, picking at a piece of tomato, missing it the first two times. A pathetic scene. And yet I could not deny that sitting in his presence was almost magically serene, the same calm breeze that had soothed me back in college. I shot a glance at my watch, 
force of habit, I guess. It was getting late, and I thought about changing my plane reservation home. Then Maury did something that haunts me to this day. You know how I'm going to die, he said. I raised my eyebrows. I'm going to suffocate, he said. Yes, my lungs, because of my asthma, they can't handle the disease. It's moving up my body now, this ALS. It's already got my legs. And pretty soon it'll get my arms and hands. And when it hits my lungs, he shrugged his shoulders. I'm sunk. I had no idea what to say to that, so I said, well, you know, I mean, you never know. Maury closed his eyes. I know, Mitch, he said. You mustn't be afraid of my dying. I've had a good life, and we all know it's going to happen. I maybe have four or five months. Come on, I said nervously. Nobody can sit. I can, he said softly. There's even a little test. A doctor showed me. A test, I said. Inhale a few times, he said. I did as he told me. Now, once more, but this time, when you exhale, count as many numbers as you can before you take another breath. I quickly exhaled the numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I reached 70 before my breath was gone. Good, Maury said. You have healthy lungs. Now, watch what I do. He inhaled, then began his number count in a soft, wobbly voice. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. He stopped gasping for air. When the doctor first asked me to do this, I could reach twenty-three, he said. Now it's eighteen. He closed his eyes, shook his head. My tank, he said. It's almost empty. I tapped my thighs nervously. That was enough for one afternoon. Come back and see your old professor, Maury said, when I hugged him goodbye. I promised I would, and I tried not to think about the last time I promised this. It's the fall of 1976. In the campus bookstore, I shop for items on Maury's reading list. I purchased books that I never knew existed, titles such as Youth, Identity, and Crisis, I and Thou, The Divided Self. Before college, I did not know the study of human relations could be considered scholarly. Until I met Maury, I did not believe it. But his passion for books is real and contagious. We begin to talk seriously sometimes, after class, when the room is empty. He asks me questions about my life, then quotes lines from Eric Fromm, Martin Buber, Eric Erickson. Often he defers to their words, footnoting his own advice, even though he obviously thought the same things himself. It's at these times that I realize he is indeed a professor, not an uncle. One afternoon I'm complaining about the confusion of my age what's expected of me versus what I want for myself. Have I told you about the tension of opposites, Maury says? The tension of opposites? Life is a series of pulls back and forth, he says. You want to do one thing, but you're bound to do something else. Something hurts you, yet you know it shouldn't. You take certain things for granted, even when you know you should never take anything for granted. A tension of opposites, like a pull on a rubber band. And most of us live somewhere in the middle. Sounds like a wrestling match, I say. <laughs> a wrestling match, he laughs. Yes, you could describe life that way. Well, which side wins, I ask. Which side wins, he says. He smiles at me, the crinkled eyes, the crooked teeth. Love wins. Love always wins. Taking Attendance I flew to London a few weeks later. I was covering Wimbledon, the world's premier tennis competition, and one of the few events I go to where the crowd never boos and no one's drunk in the parking lot. England was warm and cloudy, and each morning I walked the tree-lined streets near the tennis courts, 
passing teenagers queued up for leftover tickets and vendors selling strawberries and cream. Outside the gate was a newsstand that sold a half dozen colorful British tabloids featuring photos of topless women, paparazzi pictures of the royal family, horoscopes, sports, lottery contests, and a wee bit of actual news. Their top headline of the day was written on a small chalkboard that leaned against the latest stack of papers and usually read something like, Diana in row with Charles, or Gaza to team, give me millions. People scooped up these tabloids, devoured their gossip, and on previous trips to England, I'd always done the same. But now, for some reason, I found myself thinking about Maury whenever I read anything silly or mindless. I kept picturing him there in the house with the Japanese maple on the hardwood floors, counting his breath, squeezing out every moment with his loved ones, while I spent so many hours on things that meant absolutely nothing to me personally. Movie stars, supermodels, the latest noise out of Princess Di or Madonna or John F. Kennedy Jr. In a strange way, I envied the quality of Maury's time, even as I lamented its diminishing supply. Why did we bother with all the distractions we did? Back home, the O.J. Simpson trial was in full swing, and there were people who surrendered their entire lunch hours watching it, then taped the rest so they could watch more at night. They didn't know O.J. Simpson. They didn't know anyone involved in the case. Yet they gave up days and weeks of their lives addicted to someone else's drama. I remember what Maury said to me during our visit. The culture we have does not make people feel good about themselves. And you have to be strong enough to say if the culture doesn't work, don't use it. Maury, true to these words, had developed his own culture long before he got sick. Discussion groups, walks with friends, dancing to his music at the Harvard Square Church. He started a project called Greenhouse where poor people could receive mental health services. He read books to find new ideas for his classes. He visited with colleagues. He kept up with old students. He wrote letters to distant friends. He took more time eating and looking at nature, and he wasted no time in front of TV sitcoms or movies of the week. He had created a cocoon of human activities, conversation, interaction, affection, and it filled his life like an overflowing soup bowl. I had also developed my own culture, work. I did four or five media jobs in England, juggling them like a clown. I spent eight hours a day on a computer, feeding my stories back to the States. Then I did TV pieces, traveling with a crew throughout parts of London. I also phoned in radio reports every morning and afternoon, and this was not an abnormal load. Over the years, I'd taken labor as my companion and had moved everything else to the side. In Wimbledon, I ate meals at my little wooden work cubicle and thought nothing of it. On one particularly crazy day, a crush of reporters had tried to chase down Andre Agassi and his famous girlfriend, Brooke Shields, and I had gotten knocked over by a British photographer who barely muttered sorry before sweeping past his huge metal lens strapped around his neck. I thought of something else Maury had told me. So many people, Mitch, he said, walk around with a meaningless life. They seem half asleep, even when they're busy doing things they think are important. This is because they're chasing the wrong things. The way you get meaning into your life is to devote yourself to loving others, devote yourself to your community around you, and devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. I knew Maury was right, not that I did anything about it. At the end of the tournament, and the countless cups of coffee I drank to get through it, I closed my computer, cleaned out my cubicle, and went back to the apartment to pack. It was late, the TV was nothing but fuzz. I flew to Detroit, arrived late in the afternoon, dragged myself home, and went to sleep. I awoke to a jolting piece of news. The unions at my newspaper had gone on strike. The place was shut down. 
There were picketers at the front entrance and marchers chanting up and down the street. As a member of the union, I had no choice. I was suddenly, and for the first time in my life, out of a job, out of a paycheck, and pitted against my employers. Union leaders called my home and warned me against any contact with my former editors, many of whom were my friends. They told me to hang up if these people tried to call and plead their case. We're going to fight until we win, the union leaders swore, sounding like soldiers. I felt confused and depressed. Although the TV and radio work were nice supplements, the newspaper had always been my lifeline, my oxygen. When I saw my stories in print each morning, I knew that, in at least one way, I was alive. Now it was gone, and as the strike continued, the first day, the second day, the third day, there were worried phone calls and rumors that this could go on for months. Everything I had known was upside down. There were sporting events each night that I would have gone to cover. Instead, I stayed home and watched them on TV. I had grown used to thinking that readers somehow needed my column, and I was stunned at how easily things went on without me. After a week of this, I picked up the phone and dialed Maury's number. Connie brought him to the telephone. You're coming to visit me, he said, less a question than a statement. Well, could I, I said. How about Tuesday, he said. Tuesday would be good, I said. Tuesday would be fine. In my sophomore year, I take two more of Maury's courses. We go beyond the classroom, meeting now and then just to talk. I've never done this before with an adult who was not a relative, yet I feel comfortable doing it with Maury, and he seems comfortable making the time. Where shall we visit today, he asks cheerily when I enter his office. In the spring, we sit under a tree outside the sociology building, and in the winter, we sit by his desk, me in my gray sweatshirts and Adidas sneakers, Maury in Rockport shoes and corduroy pants. Each time we talk, he listens to me ramble, then he tries to pass on some sort of life lesson. He warns me that money is not the most important thing, contrary to the popular view on campus. He tells me I need to be fully human. He speaks of the alienation of youth and the need for connectedness with the society around me. Some of these things I understand, some I do not. It makes no difference. The discussions give me an excuse to talk to him. Fatherly conversations I cannot have with my own father, who would like me to be a lawyer. Maury hates lawyers. What do you want to do when you get out of college, he asks. I want to be a musician, I say, a piano player. Wonderful, he says. But that's a hard life. Yeah, I say. A lot of sharks, he says. That's what I hear. Still, he says, if you really want it, then you'll make your dream happen. I want to hug Maury to thank him for saying that, but I'm not that open. I only nod instead. I bet you play piano with a lot of pep, he says. I laugh. Pep? He laughs back. Pep, what's the matter? They don't say that anymore? The first Tuesday, we talk about the world. Connie opened the door and let me in. Maury was in his wheelchair by the kitchen table, wearing a loose cotton shirt and even looser black sweatpants. They were loose because his legs had atrophied beyond normal clothing size. You could get two hands around his thighs and have your fingers touch. Had he been able to stand, Maury would have been no more than five feet tall, and he'd probably have fit into a sixth grader's jeans. I got you something, I announced, holding up a brown paper bag. I'd stopped on my way from the airport at a nearby supermarket and purchased some turkey, potato salad, macaroni salad, and bagels. I knew there was plenty of food at the house, but I wanted to contribute something. I was so powerless to help Maury otherwise, and I remembered his fondness for eating. Ah, so much food, he sang. Well, now you have to eat it with me. 
We sat at the kitchen table, surrounded by wicker chairs. This time, without the need to make up 16 years of information, we slid quickly into the familiar waters of our old college dialogue. Maury asking questions, listening to my replies, stopping like a chef to sprinkle in something I'd forgotten or hadn't realized. He asked about the newspaper strike, and true to form, he couldn't understand why both sides didn't simply communicate with each other and solve their problems. I told him not everyone was as smart as he was. Occasionally, he had to stop to use the bathroom, a process that took some time. Connie would wheel him to the toilet, then lift him from the chair and support him as he urinated into the beaker. Each time he came back, he looked tired. Do you remember when I told Ted Koppel that pretty soon someone was going to have to wipe my ass, he said? I laughed. You don't forget a moment like that. Well, he said, I think that day is coming, and that one bothers me. Why? Because it's the ultimate sign of dependency, Mitch. Someone wiping your bottom. But I'm working on it. I'm trying to enjoy the process. Enjoy it, I said? Yes. After all, I get to be a baby one more time. <laughs> That's a unique way of looking at it, I said. Well, he said, I have to look at life uniquely now. Let's face it, I can't go shopping. I can't take care of the bank accounts. I can't take out the garbage. But I can sit here with my dwindling days and look at what I think is important in life. I have both the time and the reason to do that. So, I said, in a reflexively cynical response, I guess the key to finding the meaning of life is to stop taking out the garbage? He laughed, and I was relieved that he did. As Connie took the plates away, I noticed a stack of newspapers that had obviously been read before I got there. You bother keeping up with the news, I asked? Yes, Maury said. You think that's strange? You think because I'm dying, I shouldn't care what happens in this world? Maybe, I said. He sighed. Maybe you're right. Maybe I shouldn't care. After all, I won't be around to see how it turns out. But it's hard to explain, Mitch. Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. The other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street, getting fired upon, killed, innocent victims. And I just started to cry. Wish as if it were my own. I don't know any of these people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. His eyes got moist and I tried to change the subject, but he dabbed his face and waved me off. I cry all the time now, he said. Never mind. Amazing, I thought. I worked in the news business. I covered stories where people died. I interviewed grieving family members. I even attended the funerals. I never cried. Maury, for the suffering of people half a world away, was weeping. Is this what comes at the end, I wondered? Maybe death is the great equalizer, the one big thing that can finally make strangers shed a tear for one another. Maury honked loudly into the tissue. This is okay with you, isn't it? Men crying? Sure, I said too quickly. He grinned. Ah, Mitch, I'm going to loosen you up. One day, I'm going to show you it's okay to cry. Yeah, yeah, I said. Yeah, yeah, he said. We laughed because we used to say the same thing nearly 20 years earlier, mostly on Tuesdays. In fact, Tuesday had always been our day together. Most of my courses with Maury were on Tuesdays. He'd had office hours on Tuesdays. And when I wrote my senior thesis, which was pretty much Maury's suggestion right from the start, it was on Tuesdays that we sat together by his desk or in the cafeteria or on the steps of Perlman Hall going over the work. So it seemed only fitting that we were back together on a Tuesday, here in the house with the Japanese maple out front. As I readied to go, I mentioned this to Maury. We're Tuesday people, he said. 
Tuesday people, I repeated. Maury smiled. Mitch, you asked about caring for people I don't even know, but can I tell you the thing I'm learning most with this disease? What's that, I said. The most important thing in life is to learn how to give out love and to let it come in. His voice dropped to a whisper. Let it come in. We think we don't deserve love, he said. We think if we let it in, we'll become too soft. But a wise man named Levine said it right. He said, love is the only rational act. Maury repeated it carefully, pausing for effect. Love is the only rational act. I nodded like a good student, and he exhaled weakly. I leaned over to give him a hug, and then, although it's really not like me, I kissed him on the cheek. I felt his weakened hands on my arms, the thin stubble of his whiskers brushing my face. So, he whispered, you'll come back next Tuesday? It's my sophomore year in college. He enters the classroom, sits down, doesn't say anything. He looks at us and we look at him. At first there are a few giggles, but Maury only shrugs, and eventually a deep silence falls and we begin to notice the smallest sound, the radiator humming in the corner of the room, the nasal breathing of one of the fat students. Some of us are agitated. When's he going to say something? We squirm. We check our watches. A few students look out the window, trying to be above it all. This goes on a good 15 minutes before Maury finally breaks in with a whisper. What's happening here? He asks. And slowly a discussion begins, as Maury had wanted all along, about the effects of silence on human relations. Why are we so embarrassed by silence? What comfort do we take in all the noise? I'm not bothered by silence. For all the noise I make with my friends, I'm still not comfortable talking about my feelings in front of others, especially not classmates in college. I could sit in the quiet for hours if that's what the class demanded. On my way out, Maury stops me. You didn't say much today, he remarks. I don't know, I say. I just didn't have anything to add. I think you have a lot to add, Mitch, he says. In fact, you remind me of someone I knew, who also liked to keep things to himself when he was younger. Who's that, I ask? Me, Maury says. The Syllabus His death sentence came in the summer of 1994. Looking back, Maury knew something bad was coming long before that. He knew it the day he gave up dancing. He'd always been a dancer, my old professor. The music didn't matter. Rock and roll, big band, the blues, he loved them all. He would close his eyes and with a blissful smile begin to move to his own sense of rhythm. It wasn't always pretty, but then he didn't worry about a partner. Maury danced by himself. He used to go to this church in Harvard Square every Wednesday night for something called Dance Free. They had flashing lights and booming speakers, and Maury would wander in amongst the mostly student crowd, wearing a white t-shirt and black sweatpants and a towel around his neck. And whatever music was playing, that's the music to which he danced. He'd do the Lindy to Jimi Hendrix. He twisted and twirled. He waved his arms like a conductor on amphetamines until sweat was dripping down the middle of his back. No one there knew he was a prominent doctor of sociology with years of experience as a college professor and several well-respected books. They just thought he was some old nut. Once he brought a tango tape and got them to play it over the speakers. Then he commandeered the floor, shooting back and forth like some hot Latin lover. When he finished, everyone applauded. He could have stayed in that moment forever. But then the dancing stopped. He developed asthma in his 60s. His breathing became labored. One day he was walking along the Charles River and a cold burst of wind left him choking for air. 
He was rushed to the hospital and injected with adrenaline. A few years later, he began to have trouble walking, and at a birthday party for a friend, he stumbled inexplicably. Another night, he fell down the steps of a theater, startling a small crowd of people. Give him air, someone yelled. He was in his 70s by this point, so they whispered, old age, and helped him to his feet. But Maury, who was always more in touch with his insides than the rest of us, knew something else was wrong. This was more than old age. He was weary all the time. He had trouble sleeping, and he dreamt he was dying. He began to see doctors, lots of them. They tested his blood. They tested his urine. They put a scope up his rear end and looked inside his intestines. Finally, when nothing could be found, one doctor ordered a muscle biopsy, taking a small piece out of Maury's calf. The lab report came back suggesting a neurological problem, and Maury was brought in for yet another series of tests. In one of those tests, he was sat in a special seat as they zapped him with electrical current, an electric chair of sorts, and studied his neurological responses. We need to check this further, the doctor said, looking over the results. Why, Maury asked, what is it? We're not sure. Your times are slow. His times were slow? What did that mean? Finally, on a hot, humid day in August 1994, Maury and his wife, Charlotte, went to the neurologist's office, and he asked them to sit before he broke the news. Maury had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, a brutal, unforgiving illness of the neurological system. There was no known cure. How did I get it? Maury asked. Nobody knew. Is it terminal? Yes. So I'm going to die? Yes, you are, the doctor said. I'm very sorry. He sat with Maury and Charlotte for nearly two hours, patiently answering their questions. When they left, the doctor gave them some information on ALS, little pamphlets, as if they were opening a bank account. Outside, the sun was shining and people were going about their business. A woman ran to put money in the parking meter. Another carried groceries. Charlotte had a million thoughts running through her mind. How much time do we have left? How will we manage? How will we pay the bills? My old professor, meanwhile, was stunned by the normalcy of the day around him. Shouldn't the world stop, he thought? Don't they know what's happened to me? But the world did not stop. It took no notice at all. And as Maury pulled weakly on the car door, he felt as if he were dropping into a hole. Now what? He thought. As my old professor searched for answers, the disease took him over day by day, week by week. He backed the car out of the garage one morning and could barely push the brakes. That was the end of his driving. He kept tripping, so he purchased a cane. That was the end of his walking free. He went for his regular swim at the YMCA, but found he could no longer undress himself. So he hired his first home care worker, a theology student named Tony, who helped him in and out of the pool and in and out of his bathing suit. In the locker room, the other swimmers pretended not to stare. They stared anyhow. And that was the end of Maury's privacy. In the fall of 1994, Maury came to the Hilly Brandeis campus to teach his final college course. He could have skipped this, of course. The university would have understood. Why suffer in front of so many people? Stay at home. Get your affairs in order. But the idea of quitting did not occur to Maury. Instead, he hobbled into the classroom, his home for more than 30 years. Because of the cane, he took a while to reach the chair. Finally, he sat down, dropped his glasses off his nose, and looked out at the young faces who stared back in silence. My friends, he said, I assume you're all here for the social psychology class. I've been teaching this course for 20 years, and this is the first time I can say there is a risk in taking it, 
because I have a fatal illness. I may not live to finish the semester. If you feel this is a problem, I understand if you wish to drop the course. He smiled, and that was the end of his secret. ALS is like a lit candle. It melts your nerves and leaves your body a pile of wax. Often it begins with the legs and works its way up. You lose control of your thigh muscles so that you cannot support yourself standing. You lose control of your trunk muscles so that you cannot sit up straight. By the end, if you are still alive, you're breathing through a tube in a hole in your throat while your soul, perfectly awake, is imprisoned inside a limp husk, perhaps able to blink or click a tongue like something from a science fiction movie, the man frozen inside his own flesh. This takes no more than five years from the day you contract the disease. Maury's doctors guessed he had two years left. Maury knew it was less. But my old professor had made a profound decision when he began to construct the day he came out of the doctor's office with a sword hanging over his head. Do I wither up and disappear, he thought, or do I make the best of my time left? He would not wither. He would not be ashamed of dying. Instead, he would make death his final project, the center point of his days. Since everyone was going to die, he could be of great value, right? He could be research, a human textbook. Study me in my slow and patient demise. Watch what happens to me. Learn with me. Maury would walk that final bridge between life and death, and he would narrate the trip. The fall semester passed quickly. The pills increased. Therapy became a regular routine. Nurses came to his house to work with Maury's withering legs to keep the muscles active, bending them back and forth as if pumping water from a well. Massage specialists came in once a week to try to soothe the constant heavy stiffness he felt. He met with meditation teachers and closed his eyes and narrowed his thoughts until his world shrunk down to a single breath, in and out, in and out. One day, using his cane, he stepped onto the curb and fell over into the street. The cane was exchanged for a walker. As his body weakened, the back and forth to the bathroom became too exhausting, so Maury began to urinate into a large beaker. He had to support himself as he did this, meaning someone had to hold the beaker while Maury filled it. Now, most of us would be embarrassed by all this, especially at Maury's age, but Maury was not like most of us. When some of his close colleagues would visit, he would say to them, Listen, I have to pee. Would you mind helping? Are you okay with that? Often, to their own surprise, they were. In fact, Maury entertained a growing stream of visitors. He had discussion groups about dying, what it really meant, how societies had always been afraid of it without necessarily understanding it. He told his friends that if they really wanted to help him, they would treat him not with sympathy, but with visits, phone calls, a sharing of their problems, the way they'd always shared their problems before, because Maury had always been a wonderful listener. For all that was happening to him, his voice was strong and inviting, and his mind was vibrating with a million thoughts. He was intent on proving that the word dying was not synonymous with the word useless. The new year came and went. Although he never said it to anyone, Maury knew this would be the last year of his life. He was using a wheelchair now, and he was fighting time to say all the things he wanted to say to all the people he loved. When a colleague at Brandeis died suddenly of a heart attack, Maury went to his funeral. He came home depressed. What a waste, he said. All those people saying all those wonderful things and Irv never got to hear any of it. Maury had a better idea. He made some calls, he chose a date, and on a cold Sunday afternoon, he was joined in his home by a small group of friends and family for a living funeral. Each of them spoke and paid tribute to my old professor. Some cried, some laughed. 
One relative read a poem. My dear and loving cousin, she said, your ageless heart as you move through time, layer on layer, tender sequoia. Maury cried and laughed with them and all the heartfelt things we never get to say to those we love, Maury said that day. His living funeral was a rousing success. Only Maury wasn't dead yet. In fact, the most unusual part of his life was about to unfold. The Student At this point, I should explain what had happened to me since that summer day when I last hugged my dear and wise professor and promised to keep in touch. I did not keep in touch. In fact, I lost contact with most of the people I knew in college, including my beer-drinking friends and the first woman I ever woke up with in the morning. The years after graduation hardened me into someone quite different from the strutting graduate who left campus that day headed for New York City, ready to offer the world his talent. The world, I discovered, was not all that interested. I wandered around my early 20s, paying rent and reading classifieds and wondering why the lights were not turning green for me. My dream was to be a famous musician. I played the piano. But after several years of dark, empty nightclubs, broken promises, bands that kept breaking up and producers who seemed excited about everyone but me, the dream soured. I was failing for the first time in my life. At the same time, I had my first serious encounter with death. My favorite uncle, my mother's brother, the man who had taught me music, taught me to drive, teased me about girls, throw me a football, that one adult whom I targeted as a child and said, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Well, he died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 44. He was a short, handsome man with a thick mustache, and I was with him for the last year of his life, living in an apartment just below his. I watched his strong body wither, then bloat, saw him suffer night after night, doubled over at the dinner table, pressing on his stomach, his eyes shut, his mouth contorted in pain. Oh, God, he would moan. Oh, Jesus. The rest of us, my aunt, his two young sons, me, stood there silently, cleaning the plates, averting our eyes. It was the most helpless I have ever felt in my life. One night in May, my uncle and I sat on the balcony of his apartment. It was breezy and warm. He looked out toward the horizon and said through gritted teeth that he wouldn't be around to see his kids into the next school year. He asked if I would look after them. I told him, don't talk that way. He just stared at me sadly. He died a few weeks later. After the funeral, my life changed. I felt as if time were suddenly precious, water going down an open drain, and I could not move quickly enough. No more playing music at half-empty nightclubs, no more writing songs in my apartment, songs that no one would hear. I returned to school, I earned a master's degree in journalism, and took the first job offered as a sports writer. Instead of chasing my own fame, I wrote about famous athletes chasing theirs. I worked for newspapers and freelance for magazines. I worked at a pace that knew no hours, no limits. I would wake up in the morning, brush my teeth, and sit down at the typewriter in the same clothes I had slept in the night before. My uncle had worked for a corporation and hated it, same thing, every day, and I was determined never to end up like him. I bounced around from New York to Florida and eventually took a job in Detroit as a columnist for the Detroit Free Press. The sports appetite in that city was insatiable. They had professional teams in football, basketball, baseball, and hockey, and it matched my ambition. In a few years, I was not only penning columns, I was writing sports books, doing radio shows, appearing regularly on TV, spouting my opinions on rich football players and hypocritical college sports programs. I was part of the media thunderstorm that now soaks our country. I was in demand. I stopped renting. I started buying. 
I bought a house on a hill. I bought cars. I invested in stocks and built a portfolio. I was cranked to a fifth gear, and everything I did, I did on a deadline. I exercised like a demon. I drove my car at breakneck speed. I made more money than I had ever figured to see. I met a dark-haired woman named Janine, who somehow loved me despite my schedule and constant absences. We married after a seven-year courtship. I was back to work a week after the wedding. I told her and myself that we would one day start a family, something she wanted very much, but that day never came. Instead, I buried myself in accomplishments, because with accomplishments, I believed I could control things. I could squeeze in every last piece of happiness before I got sick and died like my uncle before me, which I figured was my natural fate. As for Maury, well, I thought about him now and then, the things he had taught me about being human and relating to others, but it was always in the distance as if from another life. Over the years, I threw away any mail that came from Brandeis University, figuring they were only asking for money. So I did not know of Maury's illness. The people who might have told me were long forgotten, their phone numbers buried in some packed-away box in the attic. It might have stayed that way, too, had I not been flicking through the TV channels late one night when something caught my ear. The Orientation As I turned the rental car onto Maury Street in West Newton, a quiet suburb of Boston, I had a cup of coffee in one hand and a cellular phone between my ear and shoulder. I was talking to a TV producer about a piece we were doing. My eyes jumped from the digital clock to the mailbox numbers on the tree-lined suburban street. The car radio was on, blasting the all-news station. This was how I operated, five things at once. Roll back that tape, I said to the producer. Let me hear that part again. Okay, he said. It's going to take a second. Suddenly, I was upon the house. I pushed the brakes, spilling coffee on my lap. As the car stopped, I caught a glimpse of a large Japanese maple tree and three figures sitting near it in the driveway, a young man and a middle-aged woman flanking a small old man in a wheelchair. Maury. At the sight of my old professor, I froze. Hello, the producer said in my ear. Did I lose you? I had not seen Maury in 16 years. His hair was thinner, nearly white, and his face was gaunt. I suddenly felt unprepared for this reunion. For one thing, I was stuck on the phone, and I hoped that he hadn't noticed my arrival so that maybe I could drive around the block a few more times, finish my business, get mentally ready. But Maury, this new withered version of a man I had once known so well, was smiling at the car, hands folded in his lap, waiting for me to emerge. Hey, the producer said again, are you there? For all the time we'd spent together, for all the kindness and patience Maury had shown me when I was young, I should have dropped the phone and jumped from the car, run and held him and kissed him hello. Instead, I killed the engine and sunk down off the seat, as if I were looking for something. Yeah, yeah, I'm here, I whispered, and continued my conversation with the TV producer until we were finished. I did what I had become best at doing. I tended to my work, even while my dying professor waited on his front lawn. I'm not proud of this, but that is what I did. Now five minutes later, Maury was hugging me, his thinning hair rubbing against my cheek. I told him I was searching for my keys, that's what had taken me so long in the car, and I squeezed him tighter as if I could crush my little lie. Although the spring sunshine was warm, he wore a windbreaker and his legs were covered by a blanket. He smelled faintly sour, the way people on medication sometimes do. With his face pressed close to mine, I could hear his labored breathing in my ear. My old friend, he whispered, you've come back at last. He rocked against me, not letting go, his hands reaching up from my elbows as I bent over him. 
I was surprised at such affection after all these years, but then in the stone walls I had built between my present and my past, I had forgotten how close we once were. I remembered graduation day, that briefcase, his tears at my departure, and I swallowed because I knew deep down that I was no longer the good, gift-bearing student he remembered. I only hoped that for the next few hours I could fool him. Inside the home, we sat at a walnut dining room table near a window that looked out on the neighbor's house. Maury fussed with his wheelchair, trying to get comfortable. As was his custom, he wanted to feed me, and I said, all right. One of the helpers, a stout Italian woman named Connie, cut up bread and tomatoes and brought containers of chicken salad, hummus, and tabbouleh. She also bought some pills. Maury looked at them and sighed. His eyes were more sunken than I remembered them, and his cheekbones more pronounced. This gave him a harsher, older look. Until he smiled, of course, and the sagging cheeks gathered up like curtains. Mitch, he said softly, you know that I'm dying. I knew, I said. All right then, Maury said, swallowing the pills. He put down the paper cup, inhaled deeply, then let it out. Shall I tell you what it's like? What it's like, I said, to die? Yes, he said. Although I was unaware of it, our last class had just begun. It is my freshman year of college. Maury's older than most of the teachers, and I'm younger than most of the students, having left high school a year early. To compensate for my youth on campus, I wear old gray sweatshirts and box in a local gym and walk around with an unlit cigarette in my mouth, even though I don't smoke. I drive a beat-up Mercury Cougar with the windows down and the music up. I seek my identity in toughness, but it is Maury's softness that draws me. And because he does not look at me as a kid trying to be something more than I am, I relax. I finish that first course with him and enroll for another. He's an easy marker, doesn't much care for grades. One year, they say, during the Vietnam War, Maury gave all his male students A's just to help them keep their student deferments. I begin to call Maury Coach, the way I used to address my high school track coach. Maury likes the nickname. Coach, he says. All right, I'll be your coach, and you can be my player. You can play all the lovely parts of life that I'm too old for now. Sometimes Maury and I eat together in the cafeteria. To my delight, Maury's even more of a slob than I am. He talks instead of chewing, laughs with his mouth open, delivers a passionate thought through a mouthful of egg salad, the little yellow pieces spewing from his teeth. It cracks me up. The whole time I know him, I have two overwhelming desires, to hug him and to give him a napkin. 